Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that we have the message of salvation, that we have the commission to go to the ends of the world to preach this message. And I pray, Lord, as we read in the psalm, that we would have the heart that you have for all people everywhere, that those who still are far away from you, that they would come to know you because they hear the message of the gospel in Jesus Christ. I thank you that you bring us together for encouragement. I thank you that we have your word and that you do speak to us through your word, even though this was written 2,700 years ago, it is still alive today because your spirit is at work and your spirit uses your word. And I pray that you would take this word and carry it to each person here, to each heart that will hear this, Lord. I, I know that you know where they are, and I know that you know what they need to hear, and so I ask that you would speak to them. We ask that you would be exalted through the preaching of your word now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Jonah. If you're looking to for the book of Noah, it's not there. The book of Jonah, chapter 1. The title of the message today is The God of Mercy. The story of Jonah is a familiar story to all of us. See, some stories in the Bible you tend to skip over because you kind of know them. You've read them since you were a little kid or you heard them. Some stories in the Bible we designate as children's stories. For example, the story of Noah. No doubt you've seen a lot of books for children, cartoons, a beautiful ark with all the animals in it, right? There's Noah, his wife, his children, their wives. You probably walked into a Sunday school, or maybe when you were a kid you went to a Sunday school, and you had paintings on the walls, and you had all the posters of beautiful animals all around. I mean, what a beautiful children's story, is it? I mean, if you read Genesis 6 through 9, and if you just step back and think for a moment about the story, about what you read, it would be anything other than children's story. It is not a children's story. I mean, it is a beautiful story besides the fact that the entire population of the world gets wiped out. I mean, it sounds really good, probably a bedtime story, until you think about the voices of all the drowning people around the ark as they have nowhere to go. As you think about all the animals on the ark for a year, the smell and everything else, it is not a bedtime story. It's not a children's story. It's literally a horror story of global proportions because the entire population gets wiped out. I think the story of Jonah is also sometimes designated as a children's story. You know, you've seen those pictures of cute whale swallowing a man or vomiting him out. But if you think about the story of Jonah, it is also a horror story. It's not a children's story. I mean, first, the story begins with a horrifically wicked city. Then God commissions a prophet to go to that city, and we have this rebellious prophet who does precisely the opposite of that, goes exactly the other way. Then there's a great storm. Ever been in a great storm? Ever seen a great storm? I mean, it's not a you know, children's story to talk about that. You have terrified sailors. We have Jonah who's thrown into the storm, into the sea. I mean, just picture if you're Jonah, 
Imagine yourself drowning in the sea. And then you don't get bit by a shark, you get swallowed by a sea monster. And it wasn't a quick death, but he stays alive in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Talk about being buried alive. I mean, imagine he had to breathe, he had to drink, he had to eat, whatever was in the stomach of the fish. I mean, that is literally a plot for a horror movie rather than a plot for a children story or cartoon. And amid it all shines just one bright light, and that bright light is God. Now, we said last time that the story or the book of Jonah is not necessarily about Jonah. It's not about the fish, but the book of Jonah is about God. The book of Jonah is about God of mercy. God who desires to show mercy to sinners. God who desires to show mercy to Jonah. And even as the book closes with many animals. This is the story about God. On the one hand, it is a book about sovereign and merciful God who desires to show mercy to sinners and sinful people, both who are far off and those who are in the church, if you will, those who are saved. The entire book primarily deals with God dealing with Jonah. Yes, there is a part for Ninevites, and we'll talk about them when we get to chapter 3. But God is dealing with his people, and God is showing mercy to his people. And that's why we said that the overarching theme of this book is God's mercy for the saved and the lost. On the other hand, This book stands in the canon of Scripture as a rebuke to those who are saved. Because those who are saved were to have the heart of the one who saved them. They were to have the same heart for the sinners that God had for them. And in this case, they did not. And this book stands as a rebuke specifically to the nation of Israel who were supposed to be the light to the world. And we can say by application, this book stands as a rebuke to many of us in the church today who do not have the same heart as God has for sinners. As we dive into chapter 1 today, here's what I want to drive home. Here's the main idea and the main point. And this is what God wants to tell us. Since God is merciful to sinners and desires to save them, we must likewise desire and work for their salvation. If there is a message that you can walk away with from chapter 1, it is this, that God is the God of mercy, and He desires the salvation of sinners. And if you have experienced that mercy, you ought to have the same heart. You ought to desire, and you ought to work for their salvation. In order to unpack this chapter, we'll do it under four headings. You will see that the book opens with the Great Commission. There is a great commission, and in this great commission, we see that God desires to show mercy to sinners. Then in verse 3, we'll see the great contradiction. We'll see Jonah's lack of mercy for sinners. As he flees from God, God causes a great commotion. And we'll see how God's mercy pursues Jonah, verses 4 through 13. And finally, we'll witness the great contrition. We will see sailors who acknowledge God's mercy. Join me as I read Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, 
Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found the ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. And the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? For what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I feared the Lord God of heaven, who made this sea in the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Let's begin with the Great Commission. God desires to show mercy to sinners. The book opens in verse 1 with the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The book of Jonah begins with the Great Commission. Now, I've titled this Great Commission because we know of another Great Commission, where God told you, where Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Now, this is parallel to that because we hear here, the word of the Lord came. Now, this is a familiar phrase. It is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Now, this tells us that this is more than just poetry or allegory because God speaks directly to Jonah. Now, I said this is a common phrase, but this is the only time the book of the Bible opens with this phrase. You can say that the opening of this book is just as abrupt as its ending. The first words 
author wants you to know that what is happening in this book took place in space and time and was initiated by God himself. Now, this great commission has three imperatives. Arise, go, and cry out. Listen, Jonah did not need a decoder ring to figure out what God's will for his life was. It is pretty straightforward. It is clear. It is concise. And there is urgency here. Arise, go, and cry out. The goal is for you to cry out. The goal is for you to proclaim. That's what prophets did. What is a prophet? prophet is someone who represents God to people. He stands before the people and says, thus says the Lord. So God says, I have a commission for you. You are to go to Nineveh and you are to cry out. You are to proclaim to them. But in order for you to do that, you must arise and you must go. Now I mentioned last time that this commission is unlike any in the Old Testament. We said that in the Old Testament, people were supposed to come to Jerusalem to witness the glory of God and to be saved. But this is, this is an exception where God tells Jonah to go and proclaim, to go and speak. Now, he used to go to Nineveh. Now, people argue whether Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at that time or not, but undoubtedly the city was of prominence in Assyria. It was a prominent city because even in our text here, in our book here, we're told at least four times that this was a great city. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Verse 3 says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Chapter 4, verse 11, God says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city? Now, this word great is used so many times in this book, and it's pretty cool. That's how you know this book is great. Because you see, in verse 1, we have a great city. In verse 4, we have a great wind. And then we have great storm. In verse 10, where it says here, the men became extremely frightened. Literally, if you were to translate that, they feared with a great fear. In verse 12, there's a great storm on the sea. Verse 16, the man feared the Lord greatly. Again, the same word. Verse 17, there is a great fish. It is a great book about great God and a lot of great things. Now, the city of Nineveh was part of an Assyrian empire. Now, if you know anything about, church, about history, you know that Assyrians are enemies of Israel or will become enemies of Israel. Now, this time, the Assyrian Empire is not a, at its peak just yet. It is an ascending power. And guess what? Jonah knows that God had promised that there is going to come a power who is going to destroy the nation of Israel because of their disobedience. As far as Jonah knows, Assyria could be that nation. Though this message that Jonah was to go and to proclaim was one of judgment, it was also a message of mercy. Listen, if God wanted to wipe them out, he could have just wiped them out. I mean, why go? Why tell him you have 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown? Why? Because it was a message of mercy. Now, what was the reason for this commission? If you look at verse 1, it says, For their wickedness has come up before me. Listen, Ninevites were not innocent people who just never heard the gospel. They were wicked to the core. 
And if God were to just swipe them off the face of the earth, he would not wrong any one of them. I mean, this picture is amazing. Their wickedness has come up before me. It is as if, you know, the sins are piling up, and they're piling up, and they've they've piled so high that God says, I can no longer just overlook this. Just like the word great is used so many times in this book, this word wickedness is also used multiple times, and it is translated differently, so you can't really necessarily see that in your translation. For example, here we have, their wickedness has come up before me. If you come to verse 7, where it says, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has struck us. That is exactly the same word. In verse 8, it says, Tell us now on whose account this calamity has struck us. Again, same word. If you go to chapter 3, verse 8, the king says, But both men and beasts must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn away, turn from his wicked way, and from the violence which is in his hands. Wicked way, exactly the same word. And then verse 10 says, When God saw their deeds, that they turn from their wicked way. Now again, we know that context determines the meaning of the words, and that's why it's legitimate to have these different translations here. But just to keep in mind that that is exactly the same word. Assyrians were wicked. And they left plenty of evidence to prove that. They were feared and hated by all the nations around them because they were extremely cruel. It wasn't uncommon for them to skin people alive, to impale them on pillars and stakes, and to leave heaps of skulls in front of the cities that they have captured. Visuals of horrific torture were left everywhere as a warning for their enemies. You could see why the king issues a decree and he commands the entire nation in chapter 3, verse 7, to turn from their wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Do you know what the word for violence here? The word Hamas. Literally. If you need a parallel for modern-day Assyrians, you need to look no further than what happened a few weeks ago in Israel. These people went in, raped, killed, murdered, maimed, tortured. That is who these people were. They were violent, horrific people. And if God were to wipe them off the face of the earth, he would be absolutely just. Now we see parallel to this. In Genesis 18, in Genesis 18, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if what they have done according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if it's not, I will know. Notice he says, The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, I'm going to wipe them out. You see the same language here. In Genesis 18.25 it says, And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And you remember what Jonah preached? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Same word, same idea. You see, in a sense, Nineveh is facing the same judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? 
Because they were wicked. They were wicked. Their wickedness was great. But guess what? The extent of their wickedness demonstrates the extent of God's mercy. If he was going to show mercy to those wicked people, then that demonstrates how merciful God is. Now we see that all these people were filling up the cup of their wickedness. And then comes a point when God says, I am about to judge. But before he does, he commissions the prophet to go and to preach to them. So we see the great commission. So what does Jonah do? We come to number two, the great contradiction. We see here Jonah's lack of mercy for sinners. Verse 3 says, but Jonah rose up, great start, right? To flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He obeyed the first command. Jonah rose up. Now notice, there is no discussion here. Jonah is silent. The first time he's going to speak, he's going to speak when he is on a boat. He's not saying anything. He's just silently running away. It says he went to flee to Tarshish. Now, exact location of Tarshish is not certain. It is mentioned over 20 times in the Old Testament. It is usually associated with the West. And yet, Jonah was commanded to go east. In other words, Jonah is going to go exactly the opposite direction as far as he could. If you just do a cursory reading of the city of Tarshish, it is usually associated with the ships of Tarshish, right? They were known for their ships. So if this was a Tarshish ship that Jonah was on, these were experienced men who knew how to deal with storms. Now we see how irrational Jonah's sin is. I mean, if you're going to disobey, why not just stay in Israel? Why you say, no, I'm not going. No, I'm, I'm comfortable right here. But Jonah gets on the ship, and he goes and runs away. Notice three times in this text, it says here that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah knows that God is omnipresent. He is his prophet, right? So he's probably not trying to run away to a place where God is not. He knows that that's impossible. When it says here that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, most likely the reference is to the direct presence of the Lord in the temple. Because in chapter 2, when Jonah prays to the Lord from the stomach of the fish, if you look at chapter 2, verse 4, he says, So I said, I have been expelled from your side. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. And in verse 7, he says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. God's direct presence was in the temple. And Jonah says, Listen, Lord, I know. I'm out of here. I'm not going to be staying here. I got to go. It's also possible that if Jonah was going to flee, he had to get on the ship. And the reason why I say that, because Ninevites worshiped goddess Nanshe, which was the daughter of God Dagon. And you remember the fish god? And when Jonah will show up after being in the belly of the fish for three days, can you imagine what he looked like? And God is saying, listen, I am God who controls the sea. I am God who controls the earth. I am God. Just like with the Egyptians. God made fun of all their gods. And the same here, you have the same thing happening here. Now notice how methodical Jonah is about his disobedience. Notice it says he traveled to Joppa, which is a port city. He found a ship. He paid the fare, went down into the ship. 
I mean, since there is no such thing as Lot, Providence was on his side, was it not? I mean, he shows up and boom, there's a city that's going to Tarshish. That's exactly where I need to go. He checks his wallet. I got enough money to pay for that. Man, the Lord provides. Awesome, is it not? Seems like the Lord is opening every door and Jonah is walking through it. I mean, isn't that how often believers decipher God's will for their life? The door is open. I got to go through it. Well, just because the door is open, there is a ship. I have enough money to go. does not mean that you have to go. And we're told here, Jonah went into the hold of the ship. He lay down and fell sound asleep. Again, sleeping in the midst of a storm is not always a sign of great peace. Now, the question is, why is Jonah doing this? Why? I mean, the way the book is written, if you're reading for the first time, you're like, okay, what's going on here? Why is he doing that? And Jonah waits all the way to the end to tell us why he's doing this. Now, because we have all four chapters and we've read them all, we know why he's doing this. If you go to chapter 4, verse 2, when God shows mercy to Nineveh, Jonah prays this to God and he says, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? So that's what he was thinking. In his heart, that's what he was thinking. And what was he thinking? He says, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in love and kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. This was his thought process. Like, Lord, you want me to go and preach to them? Well, guess what? If I go and if I preach to them and they hear the message, they will repent. And I know you. I know you're gracious. I know you're compassionate. And guess what? You're going to forgive him. I don't like that idea. I'm not doing it. I'm not going there. I don't want to preach. Why? Because I don't want you to show mercy to them. I want you to judge them. I want you to wipe them out. They are our enemies, remember? I don't want to go there. Now, I said last time that the only other reference to Noah in the Bible besides the book of Noah is in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now, if you read these verses... And listen how these verses stand as a backdrop for the book of Jonah. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. Listen to this. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Kind of like Ninevites. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. And then guess what happened? He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord, did not, the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the king of Joash. Notice it says here, the nation of Israel is wicked. They're not departing from all their sins. And then Jonah comes and he says, listen, the Lord will protect us. The Lord will restore our borders. The Lord will protect us for our enemies. And guess what? It happens here. The Lord delivers them. The Lord shows mercy to them. Why? Because he made a promise that I will not blot them out. I will be merciful and I will be compassionate to them. 
In a sense, Jonah was a prophet of salvation for his nation. It was according to the word of Jonah that deliverance came. And yet, the same prophet refuses to go and preach the same message to the wicked people far away. There is one word in this text that characterizes Jonah's flight, and that word is down. It's interesting. I don't know if that's the point, but just to observe this, verse 3 says, So Jonah went down to Joppa. Now we know we're on the map. He's going down. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 5 says, But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and found sound asleep. And by the end of chapter 1, he is down at the bottom of the sea. You see, when you're running away from the Lord, that's where you go, and you're going down, right? That's the idea. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Let me ask you, do you have Ninevites in your life? Do you have someone that you wish would go to hell rather than repent? That's the heart of Jonah. I mean, you might not openly say that, but maybe in your heart you're like, Man, I don't want the Lord to show mercy to this guy. I mean, after all he did to me or after all she did to me, after all these people did, do I want God to show mercy to them? I mean, can you imagine right now going to Israel and telling one of those Jews that lived in some of those cities where Hamas did what they did and tell them, listen, I want you to cross the border into Gaza. I want you to go into those tunnels where those same guys lived that did that to you. And I want you to preach the message to them of salvation. How many of us would sign up for that job? Not many. Be like, Lord, no, wipe them out. Wipe them out. They should not exist. Now, we think the same way today. And Jonah thought, like, Lord, what are you doing? You're supposed to punish them. They're wicked. They're horrific. Get rid of them. Wipe them out. Why would I go and preach the gospel to them? That's why when you read this, and you can be so hard on Jonah, and yet when you have the real situation where if you and I were commissioned to do the same, I don't know how many of us would not do the same thing that Jonah did. Many of us would. Again, that is not a justification, but that is God exposing our heart that our heart wants to receive mercy and experience mercy, but at the same time, we are not as merciful and as compassionate as God is when we do not want to show mercy to others. It's a great contradiction. And that brings us to the great commotion. Verses 4 through 13, we see God pursuing Jonah. Verse 4 says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. I mean, God's sovereignty is on display all over this book. I mean, God knew where Jonah was. God knows that Jonah can't run away. So the Lord hurled a great wind. No one is going to thwart God's plan. No one. Now notice there is commotion here on two different planes. There is a commotion on the sea because verse 4 says there was a great wind and then says there was a great storm. It's probably a hurricane-like storm here. 
We're told here that the ship is about to break up. In verse 13, verse 11, verse 13 says that the storm was increasing. The storm was getting stormier by the minute. The sailors are trying to survive, and we read here that they took the cargo, which was in the, ship, in the ship, and they're throwing it overboard to lighten the ship and stabilize it for them. How many lives were lost in the storm? How much cargo did they lose? I mean, think about it. We're talking about one ship here, but this wasn't the only ship on the sea that day or that night or whatever that was. How many people suffered because of disobedience of Jonah. The issue was between Noah or Jonah and his God. Why, why do you say Noah? Probably because it started with Noah. But you see, the impact was felt by everyone. You see, sometimes we think that, well, it's just my issue. It's just me. Nobody knows about this. But guess what? Jonah teaches us that, no, it's not just your thing. It's between you and God, but it affects others around you. But notice there's not only a commotion on the sea, there's a commotion in the hearts of the sailors because verse 5 says, sailors became afraid. They became afraid and every man cried to his God. These are pagans. And pagans in this situation, it says they cried to their gods. They understand that this is a supernatural storm. They, it's not their first day on the sea. These are experienced men. They know that something is going on here. So they cried out to their gods. They throw a cargo so they can save their lives. Even pagans know that there is God. When their life is at stake, they cry out to God. However, Jonah is peacefully asleep, right? Verse four, Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fa fallen sound asleep. The cause of all their problems is sound asleep while everyone else is dealing with the consequences. It's like that sometimes in life. The captain cannot believe that Jonah is sleeping in verse 6. Captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? And you're like, dude, I'm, I paid my ticket. I'm, I'm just... No, he says, get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Yes, you should be doing something. He says, you should be calling on your God. And Jonah's like, me and my God are not talking right now. <laughs> now, sailors know that the storm is supernatural, and they try to find a culprit. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Again, God's sovereignty is on display here. Proverbs 16, 13, the lot is cast into the lab, but its very decision is from the Lord. Once they know that it's Jonah, they berate him with questions. Look at verse 8. Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? From what people are you? This is interrogation in the middle of a storm. And Jonah gives the most amazing answer. Verse 9. He said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I fear God. Now, do you? Do you fear God? I mean, does Jonah fear God? It's easy to talk about, I fear God. And you know, of all the things you could have said about God, when you say, I fear God, which God? Because they're all praying to their gods. Which God? Well, yeah, the God who made the sea and the dry land. And they're like, dude, 
We're having a problem with the sea at this moment, and your God made the sea in the dry land. Hello? Now, we have another scene of someone who fears God. Look at 16. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Those men feared the Lord. They were terrified. They were in awe of him. But Jonah was sleeping. Jonah was fleeing. It's easy to talk about you fearing the Lord. But it's much more than just the talk. Now notice that sailors ask him five questions. They said, number one, what is, on whose account has this calamity struck us? Number two, what is your occupation? Number two, three, where do you come from? Number four, what is your country? And number five, from what people are you? Of the five questions, Jonah answers four. He says, yes, I am a Hebrew, which means I'm from Israel. And yes, the storm has come upon you because of me. But he doesn't answer the question, what is your occupation? I mean, you see, when you're running away from God, it's hard to explain to people that uh, your job is to represent God. <laughs> right? Yeah, I fear the Lord. What is their response? Verse 10 says, the man became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now perhaps Jonah said something. Jonah told them why he's there and what he's doing on that ship. They cannot believe that Jonah did this. I mean, even pagans feared gods. I mean, you read through the Old Testament and even come to the New Testament. They had altars for all these gods because they were afraid that somehow God is going to lash out at them. So they tried to satisfy, they tried to appease their gods. And here is Jonah. He says, yes, I am a servant of the God who made the heaven and the earth. And here I am trying to run away from him on the sea. However misguided these pagans were, they feared their gods. And Jonah would not fear the Lord. So they asked him, what should we do to you? Since you tell us that this storm has come upon us because of you, what should we do to you? He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Again, it's unclear why Jonah suggests this, and anything we say will be a guess. It's weird that he has this obsession with death in this book. Because many times he says, Lord, kill me. Lord, take my life from me. In this case, Lord, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Because you see, he's, he would rather die than to go and preach mercy to those people in Nineveh. Some people suggest that he tells them to throw him overboard because he doesn't want to commit suicide. Throw me overboard. And I guess if you throw me overboard and the sea will become calm for you, you will know that I was t- what I was telling you is actually true. However, sailors are more merciful to Jonah than Jonah is to them or to people in Nineveh. Because verse 13 says, However, the men rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not. See, they're trying to save his life. He told them what they need to do. And yet they're compassionate. There is mercy that they're like, we don't want to kill this guy. I mean, what would happen to Jonah if we throw him overboard in the middle of the storm? I mean, obviously he's going to die. And so they're trying to preserve his life. They're trying to save him. You see, when we see a person who is in literal danger of losing his life, you'd probably do anything and everything in your power to save that person. Because you recognize that, okay, he can die at a moment's notice. But what about spiritual reality? 
I mean, think about all the people who do not know Christ, who are in your life and with whom you interact, who are out there in the world. Guess what? If they die, they're going to eternal damnation. They're going to be eternally separated from God. And just like Jonah, we could feel like, okay. And these sailors, they want to save his physical life. They don't want to kill this guy. Try to row to dry land. But guess what? Even on that night, they learned that you cannot outrow God. God was in that storm. God was causing that storm. It says the sea was becoming even stormier against them. See, even when you have the right motivations, you will not outrow God. There's no way for them to get to the dry land. That's why we finally come to the great contrition. Having run out of human options, they now turn to the Lord. That's amazing. Think about it. These sailors, they're kind of like a, like, you know, when they're shooting a movie, they need people who would just be there on set, on, on the scene, you know, like, they're extras. I mean, the story is not about these sailors. And yet these extras get saved somehow. Because verse 14 says, they called on the Lord and said, they called on Yahweh. Notice these are the same guys who in verse 5 were calling on their gods to deliver them. And here, after they talk to Jonah, they call on the Lord, they call on Yahweh. Jonah says, I serve Yahweh in verse 9. And they say, pagans, pagans pray to the Lord while Jonah is not praying. I mean, you would think like, okay, you disobeyed the Lord. Okay, you tried to run away. You try, and then you see everything around you is falling apart. All your relationships are falling apart. The family is falling apart. The ship is falling apart in this case. People are about to die. And you're so stubborn. They're like, I ain't praying. Throw me overboard. And pagans are praying. Pagans are praying to God. And what do they say? He said, do not let us perish. You see, they recognize that, yes, if what Jonah said is true, and the storm has come upon us because of him, then his God controls all this. Do not let us perish because of what we are about to do. We're about to do what he told us to do, throw him overboard, and we're going to do that. That's why it says, do not put innocent blood on us. Why? Because if there is a chance that we throw him overboard and the storm doesn't stop, well, guess what happens to Jonah? You can't just pull him back in. He's gone. He's dead. Do not put innocent blood on us. Pagans praying to the Lord. And notice, again, even these pagans acknowledge God's sovereignty because they say, you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Pagans recognize that God was sovereign over this situation. God has brought it about. And having prayed, they tossed Jonah overboard. Verse 15 says they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Immediately, perfect calm. It's like, remember when Jesus said, hush, and the sea became calm? And disciples were afraid. They were terrified. How did the sailors respond? Verse 16, then the man feared the Lord greatly. It's interesting to observe through the text. Because if you look at verse 5, it says they became afraid when the storm started. Verse 10, when Jonah talked to them, it says they were extremely frightened. 
And then now it says they feared greatly. Their fear was just escalating all throughout. Now it says they feared the Lord greatly. And what did they do? They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Again, we're not sure exactly what they did, what they offered, how they offered. But notice, these pagans are responding in worship. I mean, they've never seen anything like that. they never seen anything. They just throw a guide overboard, and all of a sudden, perfect peace, perfect calm. I mean, they know that something is supernatural. And so they know, like, yeah, I guess his God controls everything. God, who made the earth, sea, and the dry land. And isn't that amazing? That despite Jonah's disobedience, God is saving these pagans. In fact, everyone who gets saved in this book is saved, not because of Jonah, but in spite of Jonah. None of us are perfect. And when God saves somebody using you or me, it's not because we're so awesome. It's because God is awesome, right? And so you learn that. You see that here. Everyone who gets saved is this, gets saved because God is a God of mercy. And he uses imperfect people because guess what? He only has imperfect people to use. There are no perfect people. But God is not done with Jonah. Now, if some of you are reading Russian Bibles or if you were to read Hebrew Bible, chapter 1 ends in verse 16. Verse 17 is verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days, three days and three nights. Again, it's redundant, but notice the sovereignty of God here. I mean, we had the storm, we had the wind, we had the waves, now we have a fish. I mean, Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea and he's swallowed up, swallowed life. See, if God wants to keep you alive, he can keep you alive at the bottom of the sea. You're not going to die before it's your time. God is in control of that. I mean, God could have just like, okay, Jonah, you want to go? Let's go. You're out. But no, God preserves his life. And again, it wasn't because Jonah was good at holding his breath for three days, right? God supernaturally provides this fish that keeps him alive for three days. I mean, though he acted in rebellion and God had every right to just give Jonah what he deserves, again, you see the character of God. He is gracious and compassionate. He's gracious and compassionate not only to those wicked people in Nineveh. He's gracious and compassionate not only to those sailors who were on that boat, but he's gracious and compassionate to Jonah. I mean, ponder, how merciful and compassionate has God been to you? How merciful and compassionate is God to his children? I mean, how many times you acted like Jonah? I mean, it might not have been to go to a different continent or a different city. It could be anything. How many times have we disobeyed God and God had every right to discipline, every right to punish, and yet God shows mercy? I mean, if God is merciful to pagans, how much more merciful is he to his children, to us? I mean, isn't this a cause of rejoicing? Isn't the mercy of God a cause of joy and thanksgiving? Because, listen, the reason why you are here today and why I am here today is, because, is not because we've, we were on best behavior last week. No. It's because of mercy of God. 
If God were to step on an air hose for any one of us, He would not wrong us. Right? But it is because of His mercy. It's because of His compassion. It's because of His grace. Listen, we are His children. This is not a justification for you to continue to go and sin because God is merciful. But this is for you to acknowledge that, listen, you ought to praise God because He is merciful to you in spite of all your sin. You often think about Jesus' conversation with Peter in Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus and, I mean, he's so incredibly gracious. He says, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Seven times, Lord, a day. And now, now we think, like, okay, Peter, you know, we use that as a sarcasm. Seven times a day. But think about it. Like, you have a brother. You have a sister. You have a church member. And he sins against you seven times a day. And you're like, dude, come on. I mean, get it together. Seven times a day. I mean, I get it seven times a month, maybe. But seven times a day. And seven times a day, he comes to you and he repents. And he thinks he's incredibly And Jesus says here, Matthew 18, 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I don't know if you're good at math. That's a lot, right? A day. A day. Luke further explains, Luke 17, 3, he says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, says, I repent, forgive him. So Jesus is arguing that someone can genuinely repent seven times a day. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to forgive. But when you forgive, who do you imitate? You imitate God. You see, if you're supposed to forgive your brother 490 times a day or countless times a day, because really he's not talking about math here, right? If you're supposed to forgive your brother so many times, how many times does God forgive you and me? More than that, right? So the idea, the point here when Jonah writes this book, because obviously Jonah had to come back to his land and then write this book for his people and for us here. Why is he writing this? He's like, listen. You are serving a merciful and compassionate God. When you have an idea of God standing there with the stick to wipe you out next time you step out of the line, that's not the picture in the Bible. The picture in the Bible you have here, merciful and compassionate God. If we were to forgive people seven times a day or 490 times a day, how much more does our God forgive us? And the fact that we are here today is a testimony that we serve a forgiving and compassionate God. That's the point. That's why this is here. As we close, I want you to ponder. Look at your life. Examine your walk, your week, your month, your year. How gracious has God been to you? It might be 7 or 17 or maybe 77. And again, the reason why you're here today is because of God and His mercy. All of us get what we don't deserve is that not reason to worship Him? To acknowledge Him, to sing, the, to sing the songs that we sing here? You see, even while Jonah is running away, God's mercy is chasing him. Now next Sunday we'll be in chapter 2. And in chapter 2 we have this psalm or prayer that Jonah prays to the Lord while God saves him. But guess what? Even then, Jonah doesn't really change. Because if he genuinely repented in chapter 2, he wouldn't be crying in chapter 4 that God showed mercy. He would be rejoicing in that. 
So even then, he's kind of the same guy. And again, we could be hard on Jonah, but you know what? You and I are the same people for a long period of time until we actually change. And guess what? You have mercy and compassion of God for which he deserves to be praised. I want to encourage some of you who are praying for your children who are running away. Maybe you have a loved one. Maybe you have a friend who's running away from God. Now, this book tells us that our God is so compassionate and so merciful that you cannot outrun him. Next time in chapter 2, we will see that salvation is from the Lord. And if the Lord chooses to show salvation to your son or your daughter or your loved one, they can be at the bottom of the sea and God could still save them there. You see, you can rest in the fact because the God we worship, He controls everything from the smallest worm to the greatest storm because He's sovereign over all. That is the God that we worship. And guess what? You can rest in that mercy. God is more compassionate and more gracious than you are. He can keep somebody alive until he gives them eyes to see, to believe. And so we could rest in the fact that we worship God like this. Having gone through this chapter, and you examine your heart, do you see God's heart here? Do you see God's heart for sinners? That even those who are undeserving, even those who are wicked, even those who in our eyes deserve to perish, God still wants to extend mercy to them. And you ask yourself, do I want to extend mercy to them? Would I want God to show compassion to them? Or would I rather God wipe them out? You see, this book stands as a rebuke for God's people who love to experience His mercy. But then are unwilling to share it with others. You see, these are the questions and the ideas that we need to wrestle with as we work through this book. Are we more like Jonah, or are we more like God? Is there something that the Lord is calling you to do, and you're responding the way Jonah did? What is your Nineveh? Or we can say it this way, who is your Nineveh? Who are your Ninevites? to whom the Lord is commissioning you to go and says, you go and you proclaim to them. God calls us. And if we need a great commission, we can read it in Matthew 28, right? Go and preach the gospel. Those who believe, baptize them and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Lord put people in your life that you have access to, that you have opportunity with. And so just like Jonah we are commissioned to go. But the question is, what are we going to do with our commission? Are we going to speak? Now, you know what the message is. We've gone through Galatians. You know what the gospel is. But the question is, are we going to speak or are we going to run? May God give us grace not to imitate Jonah here, but to imitate the heart of God who desires to save sinners. And he desires to use you and me in accomplishing that salvation. So would we go? Would we preach? And would we pray that God would use us to that end? Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would give us this heart. We ask that we will be like you.
that we would see people in need of eternal salvation, that we would have courage to open our mouths and speak. I pray that we would have compassion that is necessary, that we would not think like, man, I hope the Lord wipes them out, not gives them mercy. I pray that just as much as we desire to receive mercy from you, we would desire that you would show mercy to others. Give us your eyes to see people as you see them. Give us opportunity to go and speak. And would you use us to save them so that they would bring a sacrifice to you and praise you just like the sailors did. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.